Hey, this is Maddie Johansson here with a quick note before we get started. You're about to hear the debut episode of the new Alteryx podcast called Data Science Mixer. It's on its own separate feed in Spotify, Apple Podcasts, the Alteryx community, or wherever you listen to podcasts. So in order to hear more incredible episodes like the one you're about to hear, you'll need to search specifically for Data Science Mixer and subscribe. But as a special peek into the show, we wanted to share the premiere episode with you here. So please enjoy Data Science Mixer. Welcome to Data Science Mixer, a podcast featuring top experts in lively and useful conversations that will change the way you do data science. We've got great insights into the field of data science and happy hour fun on the menu today. So grab your favorite beverage and a snack and get ready to learn and enjoy. I'm Susan Curry-Civic, the data science journalist for the Alteryx community, and I sat down with Marco Gerritsen. I'm a professor at Stanford University in Energy Resources Engineering, and I'm also affiliated with the Institute for Computational and Mathematical Engineering. And as part of my work, I'm uh, the co-founder and co-director of the Women in Data Science Initiative. Wonderful. Thank you. And do you mind sharing with us which pronouns you prefer? Oh, she, her. Okay, perfect. And for all the fans of the terrific Women in Data Science podcast, you'll recognize the legendary Margot as its host. We talked about her passion for making data science a more inclusive field and her colorful career of fascinating data projects. I see references here to sailboats and sustainability, and there's petroleum technology, and there's even a pterosaur in the mix. At the end of the episode, we'll have a special cocktail conversation starter, where we invite you to share your thoughts and learn from others on the Alteryx community or on social media using the hashtag data science mix. So be sure to stick around for that. Plus, at the end of our conversation, you'll find out Margot's alternative hypothesis, the myth about data science that she'd like to challenge. And now enjoy our chat with Margot Gerritsen. Margo, I have to say I am a little bit starstruck to talk with you because your Women in Data Science podcast has totally been a guide to me and so valuable to me during my own journey into data science over the last few years. So thank you, first of all, for uh, doing such amazing work there. Oh, that is so un- unbelievably nice to hear, Susan. I'm glad. Yeah, it's really wonderful. It's It's been great to hear those stories and really inspirational. And as you know, uh, one of our themes here is that we like to have a, a little drink or a happy hour snack or something as we're chatting. So I, I think you uh, may have something there with you. I've got a lovely cup of peach coffee. Excellent. Excellent. Uh, yeah, I, I have to say that's that's my favorite coffee in the world. And mm-hmm. I've been a peach nick, as they say, since 1990. <laughs> wow, excellent. Yeah. That's quite an endorsement. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. Many, 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 many pounds of coffee beans have somehow, you know, helped, helped me in my career and also in wits. <laughs> definitely, definitely valuable fuel for all of us. I had my coffee already, so I'm now on my cup of black tea. That's usually my my second cup of the day. So I'm having a celebration tea, it's called, with uh, apricot and spices. It's quite delicious. <laughs> wow, that sounds, that sounds excellent. Yeah, fun stuff. 
Well, Marco, I would love to kind of start at the beginning with you and hear a little bit about how you got into data science. You know, we we get to hear through your podcast so many stories of other women's journeys into the field, but I would love to hear how you ended up in data science and how your background shapes the the work that you do today. Yeah, sure. Then uh, I'll be delighted. So, so I'm by training a what we would call computational mathematician. So I started uh, training in that area in the '80s. So that uh, that that shows you how how old I am now. I've been <laughs> in this field way too long, but I did this sort of computational mathematics, applied mathematics as undergrad. And I, and I chose math at the time because I was so interested in many different applications. I was, I was thinking, oh, maybe I, I, I want to understand fluid dynamics. Maybe I want to do something in geophysics. Maybe I'd like to do some mechanical engineering. For a long time, I wanted to be an ornithologist and really understand oh, wow. bird, bird flight, you know. Oh, wow. And and I couldn't make up my mind when I was 18 and, and was going off to college. And so I thought, you know, I'll study applied math because that gives me a skill set that I can apply uh, to many different fields. And and maybe that will give me the versatility to to jump around a little bit in my career. And then that was back in, in Holland where I was born and raised. And I really uh, enjoyed working with um, computer simulation uh codes, uh, building the algorithms, of course, generating a lot of data. Some of these uh, codes you you build, if you'd like, a, a virtual you know, laboratory. So some of these codes you build a virtual laboratory for, say, a fluid flow process, and, and then you start running it. And of course, you get, I don't know how, how many bytes of data that way, right? Observational data that then later you would have to explore. Uh, so that's now what we call data mining. And so I really started in data science in, in the data generation part through my own simulation codes. The biggest example of that was a little while later when we built a code with a group and I was uh, co-PI on that to simulate the flow in Monterey Bay. And oh. I don't know how many terabytes of data we generated, and we certainly haven't mined all of all of it. In fact, a lot of that sort of data is still in storage. One of the exciting things about data science is that now we have the tools to go back and actually explore those data. So if you look at NASA, Boeing, uh, national laboratories, and also ac academia, uh, so many simulation codes have been written and so much data has been generated that is really just sitting on the bookshelf, maybe on a big tape or on a disc or right. somewhere, <laughs> you know, somewhere stored uh, on, on tape. And, and that is just waiting to be explored, which is kind of exciting. It's like a treasure trove. So that's how I started. And then at some point in my career, you know, I ended up at, at Stanford and, and studied some more in fluid mechanics. And after uh, spending five years in New Zealand, I came back to Stanford. And then now about 11 years ago, I became the director of the Institute for Computational and Mathematical Engineering at Stanford. And, and there, you know, in 2010, when I started, I really felt, ah, oh, we need a special master's degree program in data science. And mm -hmm. we had data science uh, available to students through computer science, through statistics. 
But we in, in computational mathematics are sitting at this nice little interface where you do use computer science and you certainly use statistics, but you also use these computational mathematical tools, for example, linear algebra or, or some topological data analysis graph theory and there is so much wonderful cross-fertilization going on computational mathematics and then taking bits from computer science and and of course taking the foundations from statistics and then you can really build some of these practical applications so we thought we had our own flavor of data science and we built this master's uh, program and that's when i really got excited also on the educational side yeah absolutely yeah, that's a great opportunity to take advantage of so much expertise in so many different areas there at Stanford. Yeah, it's really a, a nice little, well, sometimes I call it the pea soup of people, you know, coming in <laughs> with all kinds of different backgrounds and you put it all in that big pot and then you stir it and you cook it for a while and then somehow what comes out is pretty delicious. So, yeah, no, it's been been wonderful. And then, you know, at Stanford and, and in the Bay Area and, and lots of, of course, peer institutes and colleagues that I work with through SIAM, for example, our professional organization, Society for mm-hmm. Industrial and Applied Mathematics, uh, you get in touch with so many people in, in the very broad field of data science. And it's been wonderful to, to learn from all these colleagues. And, and then in 2015, we decided to start within this uh, institute um, an activity which we called Women in Data Science, just because right. we wanted to promote women in this field that really weren't promoted all that readily. And so we started this conference and we hit a nerve and it's uh, grown into this global uh, initiative, which has just been been amazing. So gradually that took more of my time and uh, now I'm no longer director. We have a wonderful successor and he's keeping the Institute running and I'm keeping WITS running. Wonderful. What a, what a great opportunity to create an organization to make women's lives in data science more productive and interesting and useful. That's awesome. And I want to come back to women in data science here in just a bit. I'd love to go back to your own career for just a moment, because you were talking about bringing in all of these different fields into data science and exploring these intersections among these different fields. But I find your your own history of professional work super interesting, because you've also used data science in a bunch of different areas. I see references here to sailboats and sustainability, and there's petroleum technology, and there's even a pterosaur in the mix. (laughs) Um, yeah, that, that was that was a small data project. <laughs> small data. <laughs> but you remember that I said that I studied math because I was hoping it would make me yeah. a little agile. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. And and then I decided that I would uh, actually uh, walk that talk. <laughs> and so every every so many years, I I get this itch where mm. I think oh, I really like to learn about something new. And sometimes I think my colleagues despair a little bit when when I get this because then I go off on some tangent. But um, I've been so lucky. So when I was a PhD student, um, I I started looking more at fluid mechanics. I've always been fascinated by fluid flow. I mean, how amazing is it just observing it in the sky or in the ocean? And it always really fascinated me. And then I went to New Zealand for five years. And, and I don't know how many of you know New Zealand, but it is a, a fantastically beautiful island nation that has an, an unbelievable coastline. And, and no surprise, a lot of research that's done in New Zealand is focused around coastal ocean 
uh, waters. And so I started doing some coastal ocean modeling, which was really fun and learning about that. And then I started doing some sailing because I had two students, or actually three students at some point, who were working on Team New Zealand-related projects for the America's Cup. And so I got really keen on that too. And one of my former students is now uh, still a designer with Team New Zealand. So that was fun. And then I went back to Stanford and started Stanford Yacht Research. And right now, that's just me and and zero (laughs) dollars. So we're not really not doing anything. But I was hired back in a department uh, that at that time was called petroleum engineering. Now we're energy resources engineering. And Mm -hmm. so I started doing um, fluid simulation in reservoirs, subsurface, not just for potential oil and gas, but, you know, these things also, of course, apply to aquifers and, 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 and things like carbon sequestration and so on. And I spend a lot of time working on that and trying to mitigate harmful environmental impacts of uh, oil and gas uh, development. And um, yes, and then, you know, because of my sail work that I was still sort of carrying on, one day National Geographic called me and, oh my. you know, yeah, that was totally <laughs> That's exciting. That was very exciting. And it was because I put a website up for Stanford Yacht Research. And at that time, it was me and two students and, and, and maybe $10,000. That was, that was about mm-hmm. what we had. And, and they were looking for somebody who could help with a pterosaur replica project. That, oh and the goal was to build a glider, a sort of a flying replica at scale of a, a large pterodactyl. And they wanted in this documentary on pterosaurs, they call this documentary Sky Monsters, and it's available on, on Amazon. And they wanted to follow this design team you know, throughout this documentary to show um, the development and the design. And then, and then of course, they were hoping for some crashes and some drama, and we gave, <laughs> we gave it to them. <laughs> and and they, they said, well, you do seal uh, research, and pterosaur wings look a bit like seals. Would you be interested oh, in, yeah. in being an advisor? And I, of course, said yes, because that sounded really fun. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> but then I yeah, but then I ended up playing a bigger role in that project than I'd originally anticipated and uh, ended up sort of taking over as PI, a uh, principal investigator on that of course mm-hmm. with the help of lots of my colleagues because I, I did not know very much about aerodynamics, but it was this other thing of mm-hmm. hey, let's dive into something completely new and crazy and build a remote yeah. controlled uh, replica. So that was by far by far the craziest project I've ever been part of. <laughs> I love it. I think that's amazing. So we're, we're talking about a, a real-life replica. How large was this ultimate replica that was built? It was about, you know, close to, let's say, two, two to two and a half meters uh, wingspan. Wow. And the actual pterosaur, we estimate between three and five meter wingspan. So we, we built it at scale. Wow. And so- it was... Uh, partly a success. So I was really quite proud of the team for what they did in gliding phase. And so you can see that in the, in the documentary and then, uh, you know, some drama uh, happened and, and her <laughs> reality, yeah, reality TV, her key, as, as my son called the, the, the model crashed and he was four or five at the time. So he named it. And, um, Oh, he must've loved that project. <laughs> yes. He was, he was part of it. It was, that was, um, you know, he, I was a sort of part-time single mom at the time. And, and so mm-hmm. I took my son everywhere and, and he, he loved it. 
And it was mostly a weekend and evening project because I was working on my my tenure in something totally different. So, (laughs) but anyway, yeah, so it's fun. And, you know, I think it's so interesting because, you know, I I can imagine some of our data scientists out there listening to this and thinking about, wow, you know, being able to move from field to field, that's such an incredible aspect of this profession, being able to apply your knowledge in so many different areas. But I, I do feel like it takes a certain kind of, confidence and curiosity to do that. How do you muster that within yourself to explore these different areas and feel confident doing that? Okay, everyone, I know we all want to hear Margot's secret to confidence and success in exploring different fields with data science. And I promise we'll hear her answer in just a moment. But first, let's take a quick break. Hey everyone, this is Tyler Heinel. I'm a product manager working on the open source software at Alteryx. Today, I'd like to highlight AvalML, which is an auto modeling library built in Python. AvalML is a one-stop shop for supervised learning problems. It contains everything you need to build a supervised machine learning pipeline. So we're talking pre-processing steps, objective functions and custom objective functions, plenty of supervised learning models, and an auto modeling tuner. Finally, once you get that auto modeling pipeline, it contains model understanding functions so you can really understand how that model performed and what you might need to tweak. In just a few lines of code, you can get a pipeline that is tuned against an objective function of your choice via Bayesian hyperparameter optimization. We have this up on our GitHub page, which is github.com slash Additionally, you can check out our documentation and some tutorials on evalml.altrix.com. Stay tuned for additional demos and updates. You can get the latest news by following us on Twitter at AltrixOSS. Thanks for telling us all about EvalML, Tyler. And now let's get back to Margot Gerritsen, who is just about to tell us how she finds the confidence to venture into whole new areas with her data science expertise. Yeah, well, you know, <laughs> the the I don't feel very confident doing it. <laughs> so it's not it's not that I have confidence. At some point, you do it often enough that you think, okay, I'm going to panic for a while now, but I've survived <laughs> many times before, so it's probably going to be okay. But you know, think of it as diving into cold and 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 deep water, like you're in a mountain lake in the summer, and you know that water is going to be very cold. And yet you dive in and, and then you, you know, sort of sink or swim and it's going to be okay. So, so typically I, I go in because I really like learning. And mm-hmm. so that drives me. And then usually I have uh, a couple of months of sheer panic where I think, what am I doing? And a total imposter and it feels very uncomfortable. But then I remind myself, but I'm learning so much. You know, you're on this yes. learning curve yeah. and it's super steep. But how fun it is to be learning for work and you know then after a few months you start to understand things a little bit better and i'm i'm blatantly honest uh, most of the time <laughs> when i was younger it was a little bit harder to be so honest about my lack of of knowledge but i i i tried to say no hey teach me you know or or I get a group of courageous students around me who are willing to learn with me. I just recently dove into a new project on transportation modeling where we're interested in full decommissioning of internal combustion engine vehicles. And that is new for me. And I have four Mm -hmm. students in this group and they know this is new for me, it's new for them. And so we're exploring this together and it's super fun. Also hard for the students, but I think it's really 
really good to sort of learn to be comfortable with the uncomfortable because that's what research really is about and if you're comfortable uh, most of the time I don't think you're really learning all that much. That's a great point. And what a wonderful thing to be modeling for your students, too, that, you know, it's okay to feel like you don't know something. It's okay to enter a new area and to be the learner. So Yeah, a a panic-stricken advisor (laughs) is is probably quite the experience (laughs) for for my students. (laughs) But you get through it, you know, you work through it. We have fun fun doing it. I think with with a lot of that is it becomes a little easier when you don't take yourself too seriously. Now, of course, it's easy Mm -hmm. for me to say now at this stage of my career because I can take a risk. For my students, of course, they're much braver than I at this stage. I do see in a lot of students and a lot of people around us such a hesitation to jump into something new. There is just a lot of fear for uh, not performing. I see this with a lot of the students too. They also have a problem with ambiguity. I think that's probably because in high school and middle school, we sort of beat it out of them. You know, they, they get this feeling that every question has one right answer. And if you don't get exactly that right answer, you know, then you're not good enough. And of course that's nonsense, right? Most, most questions are not even well-defined and most of them have multiple answers depending on your point of view. And I wish that they were a little bit better prepared for that because they have to unlearn a lot of things when they get to research stage. You always end up with more questions, right? Then you end up with answers. And that can also be very disconcerting. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I think one of the other things that's exciting about exploring those ambiguous and unclear areas and something else that I wanted to address with you, I wonder if as you've explored these different areas and different disciplines, if you've found interesting areas of overlap that maybe you expected or didn't expect? You know, are there ways that the ocean studies informed the the pterosaur project and informed the reservoir project? I'm sure there are some interesting ways that those ended up connecting that maybe weren't things you anticipated early on. Oh, absolutely. Um, When I uh, took, uh, took a class in linear algebra, for those of you who have done that, you know, it's about computing things with matrices and and vectors. And this is very, a very core part of some areas of data science, for sure. I like recommendation systems, uh, page ranking, uh, searching, so much is based on on, on matrix uh, algebra. My, My instructor at the time and mentor in this field said, you know, deep down, when you dig deep enough, almost every engineering problem is really built on linear algebra. And I did not really accept that straight off. I was young. I wasn't so experienced. And that was that is something I've certainly found, you know, that, that there are these building blocks in mathematics and statistics, these foundational concepts that you find in every field. And so uh, if you look at the intersection of reservoir modeling, fluid flow modeling, sail design, pterosaur design, uh, and other things that, you know, search engines that I've help build or recommender systems, what they have at the core is linear algebra. And and so if you can do this translation of the, the problem that you're looking at into this language of, of matrix computation, then they're all similar. 
And the, the challenges are all similar. That's the interesting thing. So most of these problems, and I'm using some jargon, but most of these problems are very large matrices. They're ill-conditioned. And, and so it is tricky to, to work with them. And so that was one thing that I certainly found, and and that's one thing I'd like to teach my students. The other area where all these problems really probably across STEM and, and many, many fields really inter, inter, intersect is in, in the design of the solution method. So if, because ultimately, when you start solving something, the first stage is always the problem definition. You, you never have a clear cut problem. And if you do, if it is really well defined, then maybe it's no longer that interesting, right? So, so you, you spend a lot of time sort of thinking, what am I actually after? And what, what is the goal of this? How will I design my solution approach? You need to understand your boundary conditions. You need to understand your initial conditions. You need to understand the players, the stakeholders, the different points of view. Are you trying to extrapolate out? Are you trying to predict? Are you trying to optimize? You know, all these things are, are very, very similar. And then across many of these physical things that I've worked on, you know, reservoir engineering, sail flow, air airplane design, wind turbine, placement optimization, other things that I've done, the underlying physics is all very similar. And and the mathematical equations that you use to represent that physics are very similar. So they're all sort of systems of partial differential equations and and again, they're, they're similar in nature. You know, you may have multiple time skills and spatial skills. You may have strong nonlinearity in your system. And so, yeah, it's maybe not, in hindsight, not so surprising. But what is surprising is that there is actually way too little synthesis between fields and, and too little cross-fertilization. And you see this even now in data science, which in its current form is kind of a new science, but it's surprising how there are different niches built. And so there are particular conference where a certain approach is always used. Then there are other organizations or conferences where, you know, people look at it from a math point of view or from a statistics point of view or from an applications point of view or from a computer science point of view. And, And some people formulate things using graphs, other people formulate things using matrices. And, and there is absolute connection between them. And there could be such cross-fertilization if people talked a bit more. But I think it's very common for any field that is broad to subdivide into little niches <laughs> and, and little bubbles. And so, you know, I like being somebody who tries to pull these different people together and have them learn from each other. Yeah, absolutely. And is that kind of, is that what you see as the way to address those silos by having those conversations, providing a forum for those conversations? Yeah, for sure. I think that what can happen in any research environment is that you become sort of an echo chamber. You know, you get, Mm. you hire people with, with similar sort of background, similar sort of foundation, similar sort of outlook on things or approach to problem solving and before you know it you're really in this bubble and you have to break through and sometimes and in fact i think that's happening in with companies in silicon valley and 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 also in certain academic centers absolutely right you see this 
siloing and and you don't even always know until maybe you 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 mess up something a little bit right so you you do something that turns out to be poor poorly designed or biased and people start complaining about it and it happens sometimes with companies and then you realize oh you know if you if you're really good good manager and you start thinking how did this come about how how did we get to this end product that really was flawed usually i think the uh, end result or the what you the conclusion you draw is hey we we didn't really have enough a diversity in the people that were working on this problem and we weren't challenging our own design decisions enough there was really an echo chamber and at some point you don't see it anymore and until you get confronted with the harsh reality let's put it that way so sometimes sure. it's it's through pain that you say okay now i gotta i gotta work with some other people but you know you could try to do this by exposing people to other trains of thoughts by uh, trains of thought by bringing people together in 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 workshops and there are some uh, wonderful examples of this and you don't get everybody i mean you if if you follow some of the uh, influencers if you'd like in data science on twitter you see that there's a lot of oh, too much animosity sometimes where there are different camps claiming that their approach is superior to others Others don't know what they're doing. This is why professional organizations that are very diverse uh, play such a such a big role, and why conferences that are broader rather than rather than narrow, narrower can can be a real eye opener, and why something like archive is really good, where people can can put research papers and. And there is a, more of a free dissemination of research work. Unfortunately, with some of the big conferences in, in say, deep learning or AI, you see uh, a real narrowing of the representation because it's it's the same sort of groups and the same sort of universities that get to present their stuff. And that's because there is a thirst and, and a real hunger for, for a certain type of AI right now or deep learning that really can only be done by certain groups because they require really uh, a large computer power and, and, and a lot of data that, that is really not democratized, you know, because not everybody has uh, the hardware nor the data repositories to really work with. So there's a little bit of banging going on right now. Where, <laughs> yeah. yeah, that's okay. Not a problem. The pleasures um, of working from home. <laughs> yes, exactly. Exactly. I'm amazed my dog has been this quiet so far. So hopefully I didn't just jinx that. Yeah. <laughs> so far, so good. Yeah. Definitely. I, I would love to go back to something you mentioned just a moment ago, which is archive. And I would love to hear a little bit about maybe how you use that as a tool to stay current and to learn. Is Do you have any tips for folks who would like to use that as a, a way to keep their data science practice current and maybe diversify it a bit? Yeah, I I like the uh, practice of sort of serendipity, I call it. <laughs> so when, when I was a student, so this is a long time ago, there was nothing really online, right? Everything was just in journals. And and the only way to, to understand what was going on, apart from conferences, is that whenever a new journal volume would come out, you would go to the library and you would sit down <laughs> and you read, you read them, right? 
And, and so I had this practice of every week setting aside three, four hours to just be in the library and do that. And that was really great because, you know, because the journals are often quite broad in what kind of papers they accept. Uh, you got exposed to, to different groups. And then sometimes I would find a, a group that I, I thought had a really interesting paper and I would start looking at their previous publications and sort of do a little a little autopsy, if you'd like, of the group, you know, what have they published? And I do this with my students too. So we say, hey, that's an interesting group. They're claiming this now. Let's see what they've done in the past, what sort of tensions they went on, what they said 10 years ago would work and what they've really continued to work on or not. Because most most papers say this is the best thing since sliced bread. But then sometimes you see in the history that they're not following up. So obviously it wasn't uh, that great yeah. of a bread uh, uh, <laughs> at all. So, so, so I did this. And now with archives, that's so much easier, right? So I, yeah. I highly, highly recommend recommend people just spend a couple of hours every week to dive in archive and just start browsing now and 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 follow some authors follow some groups see what they've done which directions they've been because papers are unfortunately most papers are not super honest about shortcomings of approach there is to say look at the amazing work we've done and here Mm -hmm. is selected proof and very seldom do you get papers to say hey you know the algorithm we designed works pretty well on this but actually never use it on 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 these sort of data or keep in mind that it took us three months to tweak the parameters you know in this uh, in this cnn so that we actually get something that looks really reasonable but we're we're not going to tell you about this yeah let's not talk about that part. yeah that's right <laughs> uh, and so then you have to do a little bit of investigating say okay what have these people done in the past where have they gone um and then you can learn a lot from 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 that, and that's that's super fun. And then the other thing, then of course, is just connect with with folks. That's one thing sure. I also see such hesitation in students to send an email to an author and say, "Hey, I read your paper. I really like it. Can we climb on the phone, have a little conversation, and have some questions?" And that seldom happens. So I occasionally get somebody saying, hey, I found this paper and I have some question about it. And of course, I love that. And so most people are very open to discussion. And now with archive, it's so much easier to discover. But I think most students just don't take that time. You know, they always feel that they have to spend a few more hours on their code or a few more hours on a homework assignment or, <laughs> um, yeah. And researchers are scary, right? I mean, woo, very scary people. <laughs> I, you know, I have to re- remind myself of that sometimes that uh, I, I'm probably also a little scary uh, to people. Oh. But, but if anybody here listening has any questions about anything I've done, send me an email and I will answer. Oh. You know, I, I absolutely will or connect on LinkedIn. I love hearing from others. Also, if you don't agree with something I say, let's discuss. Yeah, yeah, Yeah. that's awesome. Well, thank you. Thank you for that offer. That's very generous of your time. I appreciate that. Yeah, thank you for for talking about Archive a little bit more. I think those are great tips and recommendations for folks to expand their own horizons and practice a little bit. I'd like to come back to women in data science, because as you mentioned, you know, getting people together, sharing across disciplines, that certainly seems to be part of the WIDS mission as well. I'm curious from from your perspective through WIDS, through that through the organization, through the podcast where you've interviewed so many amazing women, 
Are there kind of recurring elements of women's experience in data science that have stood out to you as maybe unique to their experience or trends that you've observed as you've had those conversations over time? Absolutely. So with data science, we're in the same sort of state for women as we have been in in the broader field of computational mathematics or scientific computing for decades now. When I was a student, there was maybe 10 to 15 percent women in in that broader field. And with data science, it's probably about the same. It's actually a little bit hard to get the right numbers. And so all women that, that I've talked to and have heard share the experience of being by far the minority, right? So Mm -hmm. being the odd one out, very, very common experiences to be the only one in a team, to be the first one in in a division and or to be one of the very few. And I think that, you know, until you get to about 30% representation, you're going to stay different. And and so that comes with, with challenges. It also comes with, you know, I've always felt it was quite balanced. It comes with some opportunities and, and it's it's absolutely not, not all bad. Uh, but for those of you who are listening who've never been the underrepresented gender, you know, it can be very strange and it can sure. make you feel a little isolated and it's very common to not be included as much, to just always being seen as a little different now on on the on the on the bad end of the spectrum sort of the difficult end in the spectrum you do find some misogyny you do find the occasional mansplaining you do find glass ceilings that that seem to be hard to break through and and most of the time i think women deal with a sense of in, that they're invisible you know that and it's funny because when you're different you stand out but at the same time you're not really part of the club and and so sometimes you feel a little invisible so these are very common experiences on the positive end you you see a lot of these women incredibly excited about the potential of what they do. This is data-driven decision-making. You know, that happens everywhere, right? And and so it penetrates all industries and, and, and all research areas. And so it's, it's important in business. It's important for NGOs. It's important in healthcare. And so all of the women that I've met and talked to are incredibly excited about the potential of this field and what they can do with this, what they can contribute yeah. to it. And, and also very excited about the possibility to, to really create wealth, not necessarily for themselves, right? Mm-hmm. But this is, data is the new oil, it's the new gold, it's the new mm-hmm. bacon, whatever you want to call it. And so there is a. Did you just say bacon? Yeah, they, they say this. Is, you know, it's a new bacon. And so, I haven't heard that one yet. That's great. <laughs> so you know, it's the new what have you, and and so there's an enormous um, wealth creation going on in this field, and and this is also really what drives me to promote women because. If you have this unbelievable wealth creation, and with wealth comes power and influence, mm-hmm. and, and that is owned for the most part by one gender, and for the most part by one or two ethnicities or races, 
you're in, in a whole lot of trouble, I think. I, I think that's that's very unfair. Whereas data science really does have intrinsically the ability to, to really globalize and, 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 and be globalized and democratized because you, you're not geographically constrained like you were in the past, you know, with the with previous wealth creation of mining or, or you know, oil and gas, you know, which, which came with enormous wealth and enormous power. Of course, with data, you need access and, and you, of course, you need data, you need computing power, but you don't need to sit on top of a mine. And so the infrastructure needs so much less and you need knowledge, of course, but there are amazing uh, educational systems around the world, really. And so I got really excited about this at first and thinking, wow, this is a real chance for us to see some, some true sharing of this new wealth across cultural backgrounds, across cultures, across genders. And, but, it, but it's not really happening and and this is one of the reasons why I started with with wits and and, and and that sort of frustration you see also in in the women and also at the same time this hope for this field that it really could empower people across the globe and and we've seen that at a small scale right we've seen wonderful work happening in Africa and Asia and you know with, with wits we are in over seven, 70 countries you know Amazing. across yeah. all but uh, all continents but Antarctica but we're working on Antarctica you know we want to be there <laughs> too got to get somebody down there <laughs> yeah that's right there is a research station Ross uh, research station yeah the Ross Ice Shelf and and we did connect they should have data they, yeah. they, they absolutely have data the problem is they don't have great bandwidth so uh, um, yes, it's a little sense. difficult to get them involved but but hey, That's if you're funny. listening from Ross Station in Antarctica, please connect with us. We'd like to have you oh, part of us. That would be <laughs> awesome. I would love to know that too. Yes. That's so cool. But anyway, so you see this this hope for this field and and this desire in the women also to really help with this, to empower young women, but also uh, women that are already in the field and practicing to support them and to promote them and to show that they're doing great work and in that way really lowering the barrier to entry. Because the, having role models makes a big difference. You know, seeing, hey, I'm not the only one. And, and, and I'll tell you one, two, maybe two quick wit stories. There was this, this girl from a small village in India who got to hear about wits and she was following us on her telephone and she ended up being so inspired saying, I can do this, I, I, I'm good at math, I can work on this. And she ended up ultimately in the United States um, studying there and, and then joining a company, which was amazing. And when we started in Bolivia, I remember some of our Bolivian WITS ambassadors saying, hey, we, we want to organize a, a WITS meeting in Bolivia. And I think we have four female data science scientists in La Paz, and I think I know them all. And then realizing that six, you know, there were 60 to 100 women that actually showed up. So wow. um, a wonderful uh, way to awesome. network and get to know others and share the beauty of this, of this fantastic field. Absolutely. Well, and Margaret, you've done such amazing work in bringing together these women across the world into the field. It's you're truly a role model for the things that you've done and and your efforts in this. So, thank you for that. Um, I have a couple of last things to ask you. We have a 
well, okay, I'm going to be really honest, but we have a recurring segment that we're going to launch for the show. Yeah. (laughs) So you're actually the the first person who gets the recurring segment. So it's not technically recurring yet. I love it. It will be eventually. (laughs) So it's called the alternative hypothesis. And we're trying to ask the same question to our guests to kind of debunk some of the, the myths and ideas that are out there about data science. So I'm curious, is there something that you think people often believe to be true about data science or about being a data scientist, but that you personally think is actually incorrect? Absolutely. There are two myths that have been both of them, the bane of women in data science. Here are the two. One is that to be a successful data scientist or computational scientist or you know anybody working in this intersection of statistics, mathematics, and computing, you must have really strong innate ability. That's one myth. So what I mean by that is that many people believe that if you don't have very high level of natural talent, you're never going to make it. Now, I'm not somebody to dispute that having a high level of natural talent helps. Of course, it helps with with athletics, it helps with arts, it helps with everything, right, including data Mm -hmm. science. But, But there is this myth that without a high level of this, you cannot be successful. And that's just wrong. Because it, it ignores this growth aspect of people, right? And and so I never considered myself to be somebody who was genius level math at all. But I am somebody who likes to learn and 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 is a little stubborn and doesn't give up so easily and, and really wants to understand something. So I have this growth mindset, which I think is essential, not so much this innate ability. That's one myth. The second myth is really, really unfortunate for women. And that is the myth that this sort of innate ability that people believe you must have to be successful is more common in men than in women. Uh, And this is still after decades of debunking and showing both, you know, in, 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 in science and studying it as well as, as just from the data, that this is not true. Still, many people believe in this and many women believe in this. So if you believe that innate ability is really, really important and you believe there is uh, a threat, in, you know, you don't have what it takes probably also because you're a woman. Well, that, that combination is really lethal. And so, yes, both of them have been debunked, uh, Mm -hmm. but they're still causing a lot of young women and also older women to give up or not enter the field because they don't feel they have what it takes. And if you then enter into a culture um, that is a little different, you feel a bit left out it's easy to conclude then if you're not part of this community because you're different that you're not part because you indeed don't have what it takes i just want to say (laughs) thanks so much for having me on it was a real pleasure to talk to you and and good luck with your with your new podcast here this is this is brilliant and and i know i will be listening to every episode that comes out 
Oh, well, thank you so much, Margot. I'm extremely honored and flattered to hear you say that and to have you on the show. Thanks for listening to this Data Science Mixer chat with Margot Gerritsen. Let's continue the conversation. With every Data Science Mixer episode, we'll have a cocktail conversation on the Alteryx community and social media. For this episode, let's talk about how you keep your knowledge current in the fast-changing field of data science. Margot offered us some great tips for using Archive to keep up with the latest research. What's your favorite way to learn about new and hot areas of data science that apply to your work? Share your thoughts on the Alteryx community or on social media using the hashtag DataScienceMix and tag Alteryx. We'd also love to see a snapshot of the treat you enjoyed during the episode. Thanks again for joining us. Cheers.